0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, our participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner. Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Misty, and I too would like to welcome everyone to, um, to today's program. Uh, this is Cancer Care's Connect Education Workshop on understanding the role of immunotherapy in treating cancer. And this is part one of new trends in immu- immunotherapy. And today's program is uh, supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pfizer, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program and a number of our programs as well. And um, we have on today's program over 274 participants, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and frontier communities as well. And we have international participants from Australia, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, India, Jordan, Malaysia, Poland, New Zealand, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call as well, and it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. And Dr. Dr. Chris is William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, the Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing overview of immunotherapy in the context of COVID-19, the role of immunotherapy in lung cancer, and harnessing the immune system in treating cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. And uh, welcome, everyone, today. Uh, It's been a dream of oncologists uh, that we could somehow... Energize the person's own immune system to fight their cancer. Uh, it's been a goal uh, that's been pursued for over 100 years, and finally, in the last 10 years, we we have achieved that goal. Uh, and um, for the first time, we have therapies to offer uh, a huge uh, portion of people fighting cancer uh, that can energize their immune system to fight the cancer, Uh, and that is the uh, revolution that's happened uh, with the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And I'm going to spend the most time today talking about checkpoint inhibitors. The immune system I I, uh, like to call our our body's homeland security. Uh, It is the protection against all the different uh, bacteria and viruses and all kinds of uh, threats to our health. Uh, It saves us every second. You know, we have bacteria on and in our body that if it got into our bloodstream could uh, end our life very quickly, but our body has an immune system that that keeps it out. The immune system can be uh, manipulated and used to improve our health, and I think the best example of that are vaccines, and the best example now, I think, are the COVID-19 vaccines. If you give somebody the right vaccine, the vaccine doesn't kill the COVID, the vaccine tells our body to create an antibody that will kill the COVID. And it's been so successful in cutting down the sickness and death rates from that disease. Uh, And again, if there's any any question, please, uh, we'll get back to COVID at the end, but um, get vaccinated. In terms of cancer, we also have a great example of being able to prevent cancer with a vaccine, and those are the HPV vaccines. Sadly, they're horribly underused, but when HPV HPV vaccines are given uh, to teenagers and young adults, uh, there are uh, cancers uh, of the uh, general urinary tract that are uh, prevented in both sexes, and it's really a standard of care. So it's just amazing that a vaccine could prevent cancer, but it can with HPV. And wherever you have influence, either with your own children or your grandchildren, please make sure they get the HPV vaccine. Um, th- there's a lot of aspects of immunity that are used to fight cancer, and I really uh, i am not going to talk about all of them. Uh, I'm not going to talk about vaccines, CAR T cells. Um, I'm going to focus on, though, a few things that are very commonly used. One just to mention, and that is, um, you know, the immune system is basically two kinds of uh, uh, infection and uh, disease-fighting cells. One group of cells that make antibodies, the so-called B cells, and the other group of cells that actually do killing. These cells are uh, uh, available to find a a foreign invader, a cancer cell, or an infection and kill it, the so-called T cells. And the um, Antibodies produced by the B cells are things that find cancer. They either sometimes can kill those cells or infection directly, or they can be used as a tag that attracts other cells in the body that can kill cancer. But when you, these antibodies uh, have been used to develop diagnostic tests and also treatments. I think probably the best known is the antibody trastuzumab uh, that uh, finds its way to. Uh, uh, a protein on breast cancer cells, uh, been part of uh, curative regimens there. Uh, the uh, antibody rituximab, commonly used in the treatment of uh, lymph gland cancers, lymphomas, and we'll, we'll hear more about that shortly. Those are antibodies that science has created, uh, and they're very, very commonly used and, and really, really important and, and really main, mainstays of care now, and there's plenty of other examples of that. But I want to talk about today, though, our T-cell checkpoint inhibitors. So basic science discovered that there are certain substances that the body creates that can turn off the immune system and particularly turn off the T cells, these potential cancer-killing cells. What happens was that cancer cells find a way to hijack this mechanism. And the cancer cell uses the body's own internal check to turn off an immune response. And it uses it to, in essence, fool the body uh, and make it not identify and kill a cancer cell. Um, Once this discovery was made, uh, folks have been able to create antibodies that can block the cancer cell's ability to... uh, Keep the body from killing that cell. It's called T cell checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, And there's two categories one are drugs that uh, attack or or target PDL or PDL1, and the other ones that target uh, CTLA4. Uh, There are many of them approved now. And the amazing thing is they work in a huge number of cancers. I'm looking at the uh, the package insert in front of me for pembrolizumab, one of the T-cell checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, I believe this is a, uh, the trade name is Keytruda, and this drug is approved to fight 16 different cancers. 16 different cancers, and three of them uh, are we going to be talking about later today: uh, lymphoma, melanoma, breast cancer, and I'm going to say a word or two about lung cancer. But these drugs have the potential to energize the body's own immune system to kill their cancer. It's very different than, than, than a traditional chemotherapy where the drug kills the cell. Here, this drug allows the body's immune system to kill the cancer cell. They've been dramatically effective. And I'll just talk about some examples in lung cancer. So they were first used in patients that, whose lung cancer had spread throughout the body, people with metastatic cancer. They were found there to be able to shrink the cancer, be able to increase the time cancer-free. And almost miraculously, they have been found in some patients to eradicate the cancer. We now have evidence that um, five years later, people's cancer that was metastatic at the time it was discovered Uh, considered incurable at that time, Uh, the cancer has never come back. It's just an amazing development. Sadly, it's not the majority of patients where that happens, but where it happens, it's uh, uh, dramatic and so beneficial. Also, it helps people in other ways too, again, by shrinking their cancer and delaying the time before the cancer grows again. What's happening now and in other cancers as well is we are using these checkpoint inhibitors with the other modalities we have. We now have uh, FDA approval to give these checkpoint inhibitors either before or after a curative surgery. So patients that could have a good result with surgery, it could be made even better by adding in these drugs. Uh, it also has, these drugs have also been found to be helpful given with or uh, given rather after uh, radiation Uh, Some people have cancer that's localized, but it can't be removed. We treat those patients with chemotherapy and radiation. And now if we follow it with these immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, more patients can be cured. And now we have data out five years. So it's been a very dramatic development. It's really on the table for virtually every patient with lung cancer, except it needs to be carefully considered in those patients that have a so-called driver oncogene. Uh, EGFR, ALK are two examples of that, those of you that... that, um, deal with lung cancers on a daily basis know those words. So we're gonna talk more about that uh, and the use of these drugs and other disease, but I think you're gonna find a very, very similar story where uh, dramatic developments and adding on. Uh, Just one quick word about COVID. Uh, It is vitally important to get your vaccinations. And for now, for every patient, it's a complete vaccine series and a booster. Um, There are special cases for people with cancer that could have a fourth drug, a fourth shot, for example. And I ask you to talk to your healthcare team about that. The other thing to remember is there are treatments for uh, COVID now, either antibody treatments or pills. If you get COVID, have a positive test, call your doctor and see if these treatments help. And for very high risk patients, again, your doctor could tell you if you're very high risk or not. There are treatments that can be given as a preventative. So make sure you're in constant contact with your health care provider. Be prudent, but by the same token, please, please, you must maintain your connections with your family and friends. You need them in this time that you are fighting cancer. Um, you need to find a way to safely uh, meet with them. Um, a wonderful thing about all of us getting the free home COVID test, if we want to have our grandchildren over or we want to have family members over, everybody has a test before they come, you know, in addition to their vaccination, just as a, uh, an additional uh, check. But please don't keep yourself from the people that you need, uh, from who you rely on uh, for your uh, strength and, and for your um, your care team. Uh, and with that, um, it's been a wonderful uh, experience in these last few years to be able to offer these immune treatments to patients. Uh, And uh, uh, you should always have them on the table when you're talking to your healthcare team for lung cancer and uh, other cancers as well.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really an outstanding presentation and just a wonderful way to start today's program. So um, thank you so much. I know there were questions to you during the Q&A, so many thanks to you. Thank you. Um, And... Our next speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein. And Dr. Hussein is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School, Rowan University, Lead Physician, Breast Medical Oncology, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing the role of immunotherapy in breast cancer, clinical trial updates, how research co- uh, contributes to your treatment options. And the increasing role of telehealth telemedicine appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. Uh, so, just as Dr. Chris just explained to us, um, a very nice introduction about uh, immunotherapy and cancer. Um, the way that I like to think about it is cancer immunotherapy is basically stimulating your immune system to treat cancer cells and improve the immune system's natural ability to fight off the disease in general. But it's the application of the fundamental research of cancer immunology, and it's turning into this growing subspecialty in medical oncology. And even though there are are a lot of ongoing uh, clinical trials testing the use of immunotherapy alone or in combination with other therapies, for multiple different subtypes of breast cancer. But the only subtype that has an FDA approval for the use of immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy, both uh, in the early stage and in the metastatic setting, is a triple negative breast cancer subset. So first, I'm going to start by reviewing the study that looked at the advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And that was the keynote 355 clinical trial. Now, this trial uh, compared women with advanced triple negative breast cancer who received Keytruda or Pembrolizumab, which is the immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, in combination with chemotherapy to those who received chemotherapy alone. So, they evaluated more than 800 women in this trial and about 323 of those um, patients had tumors that tested positive for the marker for immunotherapy called the pdl one marker. And out of this subset of patients, two thirds received the Keytruda Plus chemotherapy and the remaining third received chemotherapy alone. So the chemotherapies used uh, in this trial were either Paclitaxel, which is um, an agent also known as Taxol. Uh, they also used albumin bound Paclitaxel called Abraxane or a combination of two different chemotherapy agents, gemcitabine and carboplatin. Um, In the results, they showed us that about half of the women receiving Keytruda, with chemotherapy were alive without their cancer spreading, growing or getting worse at 9.7 months compared to 5.6 months in the women who received chemotherapy alone. Also, they did show an improvement in the lack of progression of the cancer in about 38% of the women receiving chemotherapy and immunotherapy, compared to 23% in the chemotherapy alone arm. And the uh, median duration of response was about 19.3 months for women receiving chemotherapy and immunotherapy, compared to 7.3 months only in chemotherapy alone arm. Now, the length of time that women responded ranged anywhere between 9.9 to 29.8 months. In the Kitruda arm, and it was only 5.3 to 15.8 months in the chemotherapy alone arm. And uh, recently, they uh, presented an update for the same trial. Uh, it tried to clarify what is the correct cutoff for this PDL1 positivity that pretends benefit from immunotherapy. And they used a test called CPS or combined positive score. And that's a test that is basically done for the pdl one positivity. And they divided patients into four different categories uh, based on their CPS score. So those that scored less than 1, 1 to 9, 10 to 19, or 20 or higher. And they concluded that the benefit was seen if you have 10 or higher CPS score. And so that was showing us that this combination is the new standard of care uh, for patients with locally recurrent, unresectable, or metastatic disease in the triple-negative subset for the ones who have this pd one positivity with a CBS score more than or equal to 10. So now shifting gears and focusing on the early stage high-risk triple-negative breast cancer, um, there is another very important trial called the Keynote 522 Clinical Trial, and that one included patients with newly diagnosed triple-negative early-stage cancer, um, and it included everyone, patients who expressed the pdl one positivity or not. And the cancer could be small, so between one to two centimeters with a positive lymph node, or it could be a cancer that is bigger than two centimeters, regardless of whether the nodes are involved or not. And in this trial, they excluded any patient who has active autoimmune disease, that required any systemic therapies in the last two years, or patients who are having a medical condition that required the use of immunosuppressive medications, which is sort of a selection criteria that applies to a lot of those trials using immunotherapy. And they split the patient um, cohort into two, um, two groups. Two thirds of the patients um, received 12 weeks of Arboplatin and Taxol followed by doxorupicin and cyclophosphamide, pretty typical uh, chemotherapy backbone that we would give our breast cancer patients. Um, and that was given uh, for a total of four cycles. And all of those were given in combination with immunotherapy. And the same immunotherapy was used the Keytruda or the Pembrolizumab. This was all done before proceeding with surgery. And the other R, which is the remaining third, received the same exact chemotherapy backbone, but without the immunotherapy. And the ones that received immunotherapy before surgery continued for nine more cycles of immunotherapy after surgery. And the main endpoint that they were trying to assess in this clinical trial is something called PCR or pathologic complete response, which is defined as the absence of any invasive cancer cells in the breast or the lymph nodes. And they were able to see an improvement in achieving that endpoint. It went up from 55.6% to 63% in the immunotherapy arm. So we've seen an improvement of about 7.6%. And this is a really meaningful endpoint in the treatment of triple negative breast cancer in the early stage setting. So this regimen became the new standard of care for early diagnosed. Um, triple negative breast cancer Um, I was also asked to touch on the concept of clinical trials so the clinical trials are experiments that normally are performed when testing a new medicine or a therapeutic approach in order to, to see if we can improve on the current standard of care for treatment of any disease in general and it is through the participation of our patients in those trials that we are able to find better modalities for treatment in general and and hoping uh, to prevent the development of late stages or metastatic disease if we improve the current standard of care for treatment of some of the early stage cancers that carry high-risk features I would always encourage my patients to consider participation in clinical trials if it's available as you're almost always getting something extra on top of the standard of care that is Available anywhere. And that is the main goal of a clinical trial, really, basically trying to improve on how we're doing currently. And participants in clinical trials will get access to a new treatment for a certain condition before it's available to the rest of the patients. The people involved in the research study, including the physicians and nursing staff and uh, research coordinators will provide the participant with medical care and more frequent healthcare um, checkups as part of being enrolled in the clinical trial. And above all, you get to play an active role in your own health and in improving the standard of care for treatment of that type of cancer or disease in the future. I always discuss with my patients that you participate in a clinical trial, you do so freely and on your own will And usually the patient is provided with an informed consent, which is providing the patient with um, adequate information to allow them to make an informed decision about participation in that clinical investigation. This informed consent is very helpful to be reviewed so that you can understand the whole process, uh, get a detailed information about benefits and risks involved in the trial. Diversity is really important. diverse participants inform research results applying to the diverse society that we live in. And we know that there are differences in disease biology and the ability to handle or metabolize drugs um, that are involved in treatment of various conditions. From one person to another, there is a huge variability. So when we have a good representation of diverse backgrounds and races in our clinical trials, we're able to get a more realistic end results or conclusions that applies to a larger sector of the population. Also, diversity among researchers helps promote trust because participants feel more comfortable with researchers who they can identify with. Um, And I would not forget to mention the role of advocacy groups in helping shape and set the research agenda and open up the dialogue around where needs are are not being met in terms of uh, the current treatment options, which is very essential. Uh, And the last thing that I was asked to touch on is telemedicine. So the whole concept of virtual visits has gained a lot of popularity, of course, since the beginning of the pandemic. And it has been very helpful for us and our patients to continue taking care of them in a safe way. I do like a lot of aspects of uh, telemedicine, and many patients report their satisfaction with how they're able to save time that normally gets wasted driving over to the cancer center or transportation and waiting in the lobby until they're roomed and able to see their providers. Um, But also, above everything, it does minimize exposure during this critical time. So it's always nice to meet up with your healthcare team from the comfort of your home or office, and it's helpful to write down your questions and go over them with your provider during those virtual visits. Um, I don't think this is a replacement to the in-person visits as there are some limitations to it, like the lack of ability to do physical exams, but probably a hybrid model of both telemedicine and in-person visits is a reasonable approach as they both complement each other nicely. So, um, one more thing you could definitely try to include a family member or a friend who acts as your advocate, like what you normally do in the regular in person office visits. Um, and thank you for being patient and for listening. And now back to you, Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussain, that was really excellent and very comprehensive and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you so much. Um, And our next speaker is Dr. Ahmad Sawas, and Dr. Sawas is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Experimental Therapeutics, Center of Lymphoid Malignancies, Division of Experimental Therapeutics, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Sawas will be addressing the role of immunotherapy in lymphoma discussing and managing all treatment side effects and discomfort with the healthcare team, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Salas.
4: Thank you, Dr. Mesmer. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining uh, this program. Uh, as Dr. Chris and Dr. Hussein have mentioned, Immunotherapy is coming in force to the treatment of cancer and greatly changing the expectations and outcomes for patients with cancer and for everyone listening because all of us will have a family member uh, or somebody that we love or somebody that we know that's affected by this disease and we would like to see them fare and do better. Immune system therapies Uh, have been harnessed, really, in the treatment of lymphomas. And uh, in lymphoma, as in every cancer, there are specific types of therapy that work and are distinguished for that uh, cancer type. In lymphoma, back in the year 2000, rituximab was the first immunotherapy to really change the outcomes for B-cell malignancies. And if you know somebody with a B-cell lymphoma, or you yourself have been treated for a B-cell lymphoma, like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, CLL, uh, mantle cell lymphoma, then there's a high chance that you've received this uh, amazing drug that really changed the outcomes for patients with B-cell malignancies. And these were antibodies that helped engage proteins and sometimes cells to help kill the cancer cells. The next step, really, was to take the antibody and make it into a warhead, into a Trojan horse, where you could link it to chemotherapy and allow the Trojan horse to deliver this very toxic moiety that you cannot administer in the blood to the cancer cells and effectively kill them. And this technology was called the antibody drug conjugate. It's not necessarily immunotherapy, but it's using the antibodies to deliver the chemotherapy and using the targets on the cancer cells, the flags that identify the cancer cells, but sometimes makes them special against them. The big revolution that happened was to take and say, why are our bodies Our immune system failing to recognize cancer cells and eliminate them because that's really what happens all healthy people at any point in time can develop cancer cells but our immune system is able to quickly identify the bad cells whether they're infected with viruses bacteria or transformed into a malignant cell and target them and eliminate them and that's the function that dr chris initially alluded to for the T-cells and sometimes the natural killer cells and K-cells in our body. So, about 10 years ago, uh, the scientists began a program of trying to take these T-cells out of the body, your own T-cells, and educate them through introduction of specific antigens that are specific for cancers. And they developed what we call Party, and they began treating the first patient with these 10 years ago, and not too long ago, they published the results for two of the earliest patients that were treated for CLL that are 10 years out, that are still alive and doing well after uh, they've exhausted at the time all available therapies. And this therapy has become a major and important therapy in the treatment of lymphomas, and I'll go into that. And then the next step was to say, well, do we have to take the cells out of the body to educate them to t- target cancer cells? Can we introduce antibodies? Can we introduce proteins, medicines that introduce and reactivate our own T cells inside our bodies to the cancer? And those are called bispecific antibodies. And these bispecific antibodies, what they do is they grab your T cells from one hand and grab the cancer cell from the other hand and help the T cells recognize and reactivate against the cancer cells and eliminate them. I have limited time, so I'm going to go quickly over two diseases that have seen major advancements in lymphoma in the treatment for uh, with immunotherapy. One is diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Up, it's the highest occurring lymphoma in uh, patients. So we see the most patients with lymphoma will have diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and it causes the highest rate of mortality. For more than since the year 2000, we haven't seen any major advancements in the treatment of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma until the introduction of the antibody drug conjugate polatuzumab. This drug, antibody drug conjugate that has an antibody that's targeted towards a specific antigen, a specific flag, a specific marker, on the cancer cells and linked to a very toxic chemotherapy. When they compared the addition of that to chemotherapy to the chemotherapy alone, they've seen a significant improvement in what we call progression-free survival, a decrease in the time, uh, an increase in the time before people progress. That was very significant. And this is the first data that we've seen so far. We haven't seen an overall survival advantage yet, but time will tell us and uh, therapy is continued. We've seen, a lot of new immunotherapies, like oblotuximab, combined with a lot of targeted therapies—not chemotherapies that cause a lot of harm—but targeted therapies pills to treat CLL, mantle cell lymphoma, and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This is great time. But for the patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who are at most need those with relapsed or disease, those who were treated with chemotherapy upfront and then the disease resisted that chemotherapy and came back, those patients had a very short outcome, very short survival. And with CAR-T, we're seeing that significantly change. We're seeing it as early as the second line setting, where patients are having amazing responses and uh, much higher than the standard of care, and uh, lasting for a long period of time. And that's gonna become the mainstay of treatment. As I mentioned, not only with CAR-T, but we're having now bispecifics, and early data from the bispecifics are showing responses up to 100%. There is shrinkage in the tumor, there is response in the patients. And these can be administered easier than CAR-T, which requires a specialized center, which requires specialized conditioning, and requires, requires a specific health for the patient. My specifics can be administered by your local physician close to home and are not as burdensome as CAR-T. And we're looking forward to seeing all these immunotherapies come to help our patients. Quickly, I'll talk about Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, an antibody drug conjugate, brentuximab vidotin has been approved now for more than 10 years in the relapse refractory setting in Hodgkin's it has, for the last five years, been integrated to the frontline treatment. And now after five years, we have evidence that integrating that immunotherapy up front for patients with advanced stage Hodgkin's lymphoma has a survival advantage. What we do in the frontline matters. The PD-1 inhibitors that Dr. Chris talked about for lung cancer also play an important role in Hodgkin's lymphoma and are changing the landscape in the relapse refractory setting as early as second line with responses again up to 100% giving a lot of hope especially for the young patients and in the upfront setting for the elderly patients where we're seeing uh, new therapies integrated and trying to improve the outcomes and decrease the toxicities for these diseases. I'll stop talking about lymphoma now and quickly talk about uh, and follow-up with uh, what Dr. Abu Hussein mentioned regarding telehealth and uh, telemedicine and how to prepare for those. And the one thing that I could tell you is it's a new technology, it's a convenient technology, but it's new to all of us. It's not traditional. And you have to be prepared for the health team. That means you have to do your homework because there is a convenience that comes with it, as Dr. Abu Hussain mentioned, but you have to be ready. You have to have notes. You have to write things down because during the call, there is technical issues, there is an unusual situation, and you're not even spending sometimes as much time as you usually spend and can cover with uh, an, a live person visit. The doctor, your health care team, are not seeing you live, and that limits their ability to assess and probe. So having a preset or journal with what you experience, with the questions that you have, the questions that your family has, is very important. Being ready ahead of time by testing the links that are being sent to you by the healthcare team and even doing a practice call uh, with the nurse or with the assistant to make sure that you're properly set up, you're connected, that you have a connection and you know how to work the controls becomes very important because you don't want to lose those important time uh, when the actual visit is there. You may want to collect some important information that usually is collected in the office, like vital signs, uh, your heart rate, your temperature, your weight, and reporting those uh, and that will help guide you through these uh, visits and a detailed list prior to that helps you not miss important symptoms and signs that you want to report your health team and helps you track and make sure that all your questions were answered I'm going to stop over here and always if you have an emergency contact your physician right away and thank you for listening
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Soas. That was actually an outstanding presentation, um, wonderful information, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is professor of medicine at UC San Diego Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels will be addressing the role of immunotherapy and melanoma, examples of immunotherapy in prevention, treatment, and recurrence prevention of cancer and cancer vaccines. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels.
5: Thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and um, thanks, everybody, for being on. And uh, there's been a lot of information so far on the call. Um, So I, um, as was mentioned, will focus on melanoma. And melanoma, just briefly, uh, is one of the three main types of skin cancers, But melanoma can come from other places too, ocular and mucosal surfaces. In general, um, what I'm going to say can be applied to these other types of melanoma, but most of our information is about skin or cutaneous melanoma, which is the most common melanoma. Unfortunately, the incidence for melanoma continues to rise, and so kind of the need for prevention, as was just mentioned, is is important, as well as um, more effective and less toxic therapies. And immune therapies um, over the last decade have really kind of helped guide some of these strategies. So with that kind of general lay, let's talk about prevention. Um, Prevention for melanoma historically has focused on some of the known risk factors that are out there, and risk factors such as... Um, uh, burn at young age or that tendency to burn. And so sun-safe practices have been kind of the mainstay of the recommendations for uh, prevention of melanoma. But I think one that uh, gets a little bit overlooked and I think has the best data to help people is early detection. And so having access uh, to somebody to help determine if a skin lesion is is um, concerning or not. Any skin lesion that um, appears new on your skin, um, that is changing over time, that sticks out from the pattern that you have, is probably a skin lesion that somebody should evaluate. So those two, two terms that we um, think about is the ugly duckling, that one that um, just is different than the pattern of of skin lesions on your skin. I encourage patients to point it out to their primary care doctors or if they have a dermatologist and um, that uh, skin lesion that's changing. So early detection has been shown to save lives um, for melanoma. As far as immune therapies, currently we don't have a preventative immune therapy that has worked into Um, later stages in the disease. And what I mean by that is, say somebody has um, experienced a melanoma in situ or an early melanoma, and um, they're, say, a stage one, and they want to prevent another melanoma. Currently, we don't have uh, vaccines or immune therapies that have been shown to decrease the incidence of these very early stages. However, uh, if somebody has a stage 2, which is a little bit deeper melanoma on the skin, or one that's spread to the lymph node, stage 3 or or beyond, their immune therapies have been shown to decrease the risk of that melanoma coming back. That's called adjuvant treatment, it has been mentioned before. They're both uh, targeted therapy and immune therapies that can be used in uh, adjuvant treatment. But um, focusing on the immune therapies, Uh, Recently, the FDA approved um, immune therapies to be used in these earlier stage 2 melanomas, so definitely something that's worth a discussion with your uh, oncologist about. The reason we don't always give, though, um, immune therapies, as have been mentioned, these um, current checkpoints are associated with um, possible toxicities, and so always need to balance and have that discussion, like was mentioned uh, making sure you have your questions lined up. You should be getting information on toxicities from checkpoints, which can be uh, bowel toxicities, skin toxicities, lung toxicities. For some of these, all at low levels, and um, but for others, um, they, they can be very high. And moving on to metastatic disease with immune therapies, um, with melanoma, again, has been mentioned for the other tumors, um, uh, the the field has completely changed over the last ten years, and so with, with metastatic melanoma, we need to sit down and have a discussion about you know what are the realistic goals of care for for that particular situation, and with the current combination immune therapies, uh, it's reasonable to have a discussion about getting rid of the cancer long term, even in the metastatic disease. And so, getting somebody that has experience with treating melanomas and understanding these drugs is, is important um, when seeking out your healthcare team. I will mention that um, recently there was approval of another combination for the treatment in metastatic melanoma. Um, it's another immune checkpoint um, that's starting to go into lung cancer as well. Um, and that uh, targets a, an agent called LAG3 and patients are already asking about it, even though it was approved last week by the FDA. And what I tell them currently is, uh, we're still uh, looking at how to fit in uh, LAG3 plus the nivolumab or OPTIVO into our current treatment plans. Um, It's a good option for some patients, but uh, again, there's now, for melanoma, multiple um, immune therapy options to, to run through the discussion besides um, always having the discussion, as was mentioned before, about clinical trials and um, when that should come in. So, in the interest of having some time for questions, I'm going to wrap up a little early and um, uh, just, again, summarize by saying that um, immune therapy has a role for both prevention um, in high-risk disease, such as Stage 2 and Stage 3, as well as for metastatic disease, with the goals being keeping the cancer away, and even in metastatic disease, um, for a percentage of patients' long-term cancer-free survival without the need for additional treatment. So it's really been a big change in the field uh, for melanoma.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really wonderful and just uh, so much wonderful information for people with melanoma and all the the, uh, benefits of immunotherapy. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, I'm just going to say a few words now about about the services you can access from Cancer Care, and then we're going to go into um, uh, questions. So please prepare your questions. I know there are many already in queue, but so get ready with your questions, okay? Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide free programs and services to people living with all types of cancers, including all types of, um, all the types of cancers we've discussed today and other cancers as well. Um, and so what does that look like? We do have a HopeLine. People can call our 800 number um, in the United States and can speak with one of our oncology social workers. Um, we are staffed by oncology social workers, about 40 of them, And we also have a website, if you are international and need to pose a question, um, our staff will help you to find resources within your country as well. Um, Our services basically consist of support, um, also online support groups, um, case management, um, practical and financial assistance, which I know means a great deal to many of you on the call today, Um, and uh, in addition to that, we do offer many of these workshops throughout the year, about 75 of them on different topics, and we also have publications. And now, I'm going to, I'm going to ask um, Misty to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and Misty will explain to you how to queue up for
0: questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press start, then one on your touch tone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web, you may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. We have a question
1: for Dr. Hussein. I um, would like to understand the effectiveness of tamoxifen for postmenopausal women versus an anastrozole. Um, if you could just comment on that.
3: Uh, Sure. Uh, Can I just clarify the effects of tamoxifen in postmenopausal women?
1: Yes, versus anastrozole.
3: Perfect. Yeah, that's a very uh, good question. So, for a large number of uh, the breast cancer cases, which are the hormone receptor-positive breast cancer subset, which is roughly three-quarters of the total number of breast cancers, uh, once patients are treated for early stage disease or even in the late stage disease to uh, control their disease and stop it from progressing or coming back in the future. Patients have to be on some form of anti-estrogen therapy. And uh, tamoxifen is uh, an option for every woman regardless of the menopausal status. So it's an option for premenopausal or postmenopausal or perimenopausal women. And it's an option for men with breast cancer also. While the aromatase inhibitors normally um, are an option for postmenopausal menopausal women uh, and both of them have very different ways of or mechanisms of action, but the end result is the same. Um, I hope that that addressed the question.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Chris. How is it determined that immunotherapy is a viable treatment for a patient? And the question genetic makeup?
2: Uh well the the first thing is um there is not a perfect test uh and it's a a bit of a complicated situation. So I ask you to review all the information that's available about you uh and the and the cancer. Um there are some tests that suggest a greater uh chance of benefit from uh, an immune treatment, and that is a so-called a test on the tumor tissue called pdl one It's an immunohistochemistry test done by a pathologist. And then there are various genetic tests, uh, and this would require um, next, uh, next-gen sequencing, uh, genetic uh, profiling of the tumor for things called the tumor mutation burden, um, microsatellite instability, and uh, DNA mismatch repair. Um, very technical stuff. Um, But your tumor can be tested for things, and if you have these characteristics in your tumor, it suggests a greater chance of benefit from the immune drugs. Generally, people that have one of the more common drivers, and I'm talking about lung cancer now, like EGFR or ALK, they're less likely to benefit, so it would push doctors to recommend therapy, again, to the driver rather than an immune treatment. But it's complicated, and so please... Um, know the testing is needed, and and work with your healthcare team to get all the information and and do your best to to ask them the questions you need to understand um, how these decisions get made. But there's not a quick answer or an easy answer, and there's no perfect test.
1: Thank you. And for Dr. Sawas, um, are targeted medications such as ibrutinib and venetoclax under the umbrella of immunotherapy?
4: So, generally speaking, ibrutinib, venetoclax, and the PI3 kinase inhibitors are considered molecular therapies. They target inner uh, molecules and pathways in the cell as, com- as compared to usually to immunotherapy, which targets surface molecules that are outside the cell. Uh, saying that, uh, there are some immune effects of some of the molecular therapies, and uh, they are being actively combined with immunotherapies. So in CLL, abrutinib uh, is combined with ubuntuzumab, venetoclax is combined with ubuntuzumab, w- which results in greater efficacy and still much less toxicity than combining immunotherapies with chemotherapy.
1: Awesome, thank you. And a question for Dr. Daniels I have ocular melanoma. Should I be seeking a clinical trial? One has not been offered to me, officially diagnosed in January 2020.
5: Yeah. Um, ocular melanoma, it, so the always the answer is yes um, to consider clinical trials. Um, so certainly, standard therapies for ocular melanoma that spread uh, overlap with the skin melanoma therapies and can be used. If somebody, so not knowing kind of where, this uh, person is in their in their journey. Uh, ocular melanomas are typically treated um, with a local therapy to the original lesion, and then, depending on some risk factors, are followed with routine tests. Unfortunately, a percentage of patients have uh, tumor return, and um, that commonly happens to the liver, although it can happen to other places. If melanomas come back to the liver, yes, I would strongly encourage um, clinical trial exploration. There is a new medication that was approved um, about two months ago that is um, specific for ocular melanoma patients who have a particular immune phenotype. And so, um, hopefully, again, not knowing where this patient's at in their journey, um, but knowing their immune phenotype, it's called HLA typing so HLA-A2, and about 40% of uh, the general population are A2-positive. So, um, I, again, uh, there's so much to answer about that question, but I don't exactly know where the patient is in their journey.
1: Excellent. I hope that that's helpful to our um, participant, and I'm sure they'll take this back to the healthcare team. So thank you so much. Thanks. And so a last question for Dr. Sawas, please discuss the role of immunotherapy in the treatment of indolent blood cancers.
4: Yes, um, so uh, because of time, I didn't spend a lot of time on some of the indolent uh, blood cancers, specifically follicular lymphoma, CLL, marginal zone lymphoma. Those are all benefiting greatly from the advancements of uh, immunotherapy. So CAR uh, T the, 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 uh, has shown great activity in follicular lymphoma. There is data that's emerging for mantle cell lymphoma and marginal zone lymphoma. Uh, but because uh, liquor lymphoma has more incidence and uh, there's more patients with it, uh, we've seen that data mature earlier. We're also seeing improvements with the bispecifics. And in fact, it's that a lot of the immunotherapies uh, are as effective in indolent lymphomas as they are for aggressive lymphomas, but also with a much better tolerability profile so that the landscape is also changing for... Indolent formers with significant improvements in outcome as a result of the immunotherapy.
1: Excellent, thank you so much. Um, I want to thank our speakers; you've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. We could go on for another hour, but we this is an hour program, and so we've already run over just a little bit. So we're going to. um, I want to just wrap it up. Um, But I I do want to thank everybody. Um, The questions have been really excellent, and our speakers, of course, have been. A phenomenal. Um, I do want to just say a few things about those who, those of you who either asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or would like to, are thinking of a question that you'd like to ask. Um, I'd like you to all take the information you learned today back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, and they know all the details of your 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 particular type of cancer. And then you can ask hopefully more informed questions or bring the information back to your treating healthcare team because they actually then can further help you with your questions. I hope one thing you've learned today from the program is that all questions are wonderful and they need to be asked. And they need to be asked um, on programs like this, but they also need to be asked to your healthcare team because ultimately they are treating you and they know you the very best. Um, so um, I actually want to thank all of you for your participation today. I also want to um, remind all of you that there are times when you may—it's normal to feel alone in coping with cancer. But I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. Your healthcare team, of course, is a vital part of your your support team. Your own network or neighborhood of people that you know that may be part of your um, health that are part of your support team. And also please contact Cancer care And if we don't have the resources for you, we'll refer you to places that can help you. So um, please all take good care, and I want to wish
0: you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.